Hello, world. Welcome to the Speed Strength Show. I'm Braden. I'm Tommy. And when you sing eyes and ass, the words sound the same. Eyes and ass. You can't unhear it. Like if you hear a song where they say eyes, it it sounds dangerously close. Hmm. I don't I know. I guess that's more of like a misheard lyric. But once I've heard that, I can't unhear it from any song I listen to. Like if somebody if somebody points it out, or like if somebody's like, "Are they saying this or are they saying that?" Then like no, I mean I if I it. hear the lyric "eyes" come up in a song, hmm. as they're singing, I can't unhear how close those two words sound hmm. when someone's singing. Yeah, I've never noticed that. I'll have to keep an eye out for it, I guess. But oh. <laughs> or an ass out for it. Yeah, interesting. I didn't even notice what I did there. Oh, I thought you did it intentionally. Uh, no, I no, thought no, for no. sure. <laughs> I didn't. Happy accident. That's that's cool. That's interesting, though. Yeah, I. I mean, I guess it's that reminds me. It's like it's it's your expectation. I think will determine which one you hear. Well, I guess yeah, but it's it's one of those things where once you like, once you hear it, mm-hmm. it's really difficult to unhear. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, I don't know why that is that way. That's the way like the human brain works or whatever. But as soon as that was pointed out to me or one time you hear a song, you're like, did they say that? Like you get like a bit of a misheard lyric. Mm-hmm. And then everything afterwards, you're like, I I can't separate these two words. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like I think the the brain does really rely on multiple senses to interpret things. Like you remember in undergrad where we watched those videos about uh, like this, somebody was saying like it was a ba or a da or a fa sound or whatever. And like, depending on the mouth shape, you hear something different, but it's all the same sound. Yeah. Cause you're, you're combining multiple, Yeah. yeah. Multiple inputs of senses. Yeah. And trying to figure out what's on the other end. Yeah. Um, and I remember when I was studying for my arcane exam that I, I learned that when we taste, like we only have, we have taste, uh, taste buds for like all of the major tastes, like sweet, salty, um, bitter, bitter, sour, like, et cetera, like those ones. Right. Yeah. But nothing like we don't have one that's like, this is pizza grease. This is tomato sauce or whatever like we don't have those taste buds right but for our all of those it's actually like our smell that lets us differentiate because for every like like chemical compound like um like atom essentially Mm. um, or molecule i should say that we've ever smelled like we have like sensors in our nose for that so when we chew and eat then like a little bit of those molecules like drift up to the nose and they're like oh okay that is tomato sauce it's not just something that's a little bit sweet a little bit sour yeah it's almost like the the primary colors that you can use like to varying degrees Mm. each of those colors to create like there's no green yeah but if you have a perfect balance between blue and yellow it creates green Mm -hmm. or if you have a it's and then you can create darker and lighter shades of green based on how much blue versus how much yellow. Mm-hmm. I guess the tongue works the same way. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, and I imagine like the like your visual is gonna 
feed into that too like what the food looks like you're going to expect it to be um like i don't i don't know how much it actually impacts it but if i see that a fry like a french fry looks crisp and i bite into it i'm expecting it to be crisp but if i see that it looks kind of undercooked then i'm expecting it to be like hard potato or just like limp yeah know? like a softer or soggy yeah potato yeah yeah, so I don't know if that plays anything into it, but yeah, like but I, the I misheard guess, lyric with that one is strong. Yeah, and, I can't and, shake it every time I hear anything yeah. lyrically like that. I I can't separate the two words now. Yeah, and that one's that one's interesting too because there's no like there's no other feedback, right? Like if you're just listening to a song, that's it. You don't have anything else other than your expectations going into it yeah and depending on if like you've never heard the song before you have no idea what lyrics and such you're getting into so then you just hear mm -hmm. the word and you're like oh they said it again yeah mm -hmm. um is there any like can you think of any songs where you like were really confident that they were singing one thing and then later you found out that you were completely wrong and they were singing something else oh I'm trying to think now. I can think of more examples the other way where like someone makes like a joke or is like, oh, it sounds like they're saying whatever. And then you're like, oh, it really does sound like that. I can't like mm. more the like you can't unhear it. Mm. Interesting. Um, like what's the song? Um, it was popular a few years ago. I think it's Calvin Harris. Katy Perry and Big Sean. Is it feels? I don't know that song, but sure. Let's go I, with that. I'm pretty sure. I, I know it's the three of them. I think the song is named feels I'm not a hundred percent sure, but at one point the lyrics are, uh, don't be afraid to catch feels. And someone pointed out to me that like, it sounds like Katy Perry saying fish. And now every time I hear the song, I hear, don't be afraid to catch fish. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh, it, it really does sound like that. That's funny. And even if somebody thought, is that what they're saying? It doesn't make any sense yeah. in the context of the song. So you would know they're not saying fish, mm -hmm. but it sounds so similar that every time I hear that song, I'm like, I, I can't unhear the word fish yeah. in the main line of the chorus. Oh man, that's funny. Um, there have been times for me where I've been like, like a song that I like, I just, mishear the lyrics or like i i like to sing along with the songs but you don't catch all the lyrics clean all the time so you just kind of run with it um i can't think of any off the top of my head but i am reminded of two like misheard lyric videos on like on youtube that someone made and like for every real lyric of a song they switched it to like what it it does sound like that but it that's obviously not what the lyric is um, and there's a really good one for temperature by Sean Paul. Um, oh yeah, I could see that. <laughs> and then, uh, there's also a pretty funny one for, it's one of the, I, it's like the most popular breaking Benjamin song, but I can't remember what the name is of that song. And you last, when I mentioned breaking Benjamin, I don't think you had heard of them before. <laughs> I'd heard of them, but I don't, I don't know any yeah. songs by them. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember. But those are those are pretty funny. 
Yeah, the, the, there's bound to be. I'm gonna. This is gonna be one of these things where, like, three hours later today, I'm gonna be. It's gonna hit me. I'm gonna be like, oh yeah, I thought this song said A, B, and C, and I was completely wrong. Hmm. But now on the spot, I can't think of it. Yeah. Like think of a because it's bound to have happened where you think they're like you said you think they're saying one thing, but then you look at the lyrics, or there's times where you look at the lyrics and then you hear what they're saying and you're like, how did they? How did they jam all those words into this small, do you know what I mean? Like you look at the lyrics and then when you hear the song, you swear they're making up contractions where they're like shortening words and just Mm -hmm. slapping it together when they're actually singing it. Definitely. Yeah. I can't, like I said, I can't think of specifics. I know for sure. Like I listened to Billy Talent and Nickelback a lot growing up and uh, Green Day from time to time too. So like, there's definitely a bunch of ones in their songs that I misheard just here and there, but can't remember specifics. Yeah. Like I said, unfortunately I can't think of a, a specific, but report back next time you hear the word eyes. I will. In a song sung in English. Yeah. yeah. I'll let you know for sure. Um, so a couple of times there you said it's bound to have happened. And then I was like, bound that's basically what we're talking about today yes plyometrics plyometrics that's one one variation of what we're talking about today it's it's bound to come up well it it, yeah that's right it has to that was good i like that um yeah pumped pumped for this plyometric exercise conversation i know we say this every time we do something that we're like most excited I think that's just because that's what's going to keep happening. Yeah. We just get most excited for whatever's coming up next. That's right. But I'm excited for this one. Yeah. Um, and I guess just based off of the brief conversation we had before recording that we're going to start it off with a little bit of uh, controversy potentially about what constitutes plyometric exercise. Yeah. Like what is it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if we want to start there for sure, we can, we can dive into what is a plyometric and let the people know. So what do you think it is, Tom? Well, to me, a plyometric exercise or activity is some sort of action. That's typically a lower body movement where there's a load and explode or bound and rebound action in which the tendons are loaded and then boom, you're off the ground. So dropping off of something, briefly contacting the ground and then exploding up in an upward or forward or some sort of, some sort of direction, but it's, it's characterized by a very brief contact time on the ground, followed by a really powerful rebound, rebound action. And so for the most part, if you can work those two elements into the movement, it would be considered plyometric. But if you don't have the brief contact time and that rebounding action as a result of loading through the ground contact, then it's a, it's not necessarily a plyo. It's going to be a different form of exercise. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm on... I'm like semi on board with that for sure. 
Um, and that's definitely like a hundred percent the interpretation that I used to have now, like, I'm just not as sure anymore, um, but I think most people would agree with that. I think most people would, would agree with that for sure. Um, the reason I'm not a hundred percent is I came across like a, I don't know if it was like a, it was online, so I'm not exactly sure, but it was like a book, a short book or like a presentation or something by Natalia Verkashansky. And um, Yuri's yeah, uh, Yuri's daughter. daughter. And Yuri's considered the, like the father of plyometrics. Mm-hmm. And in that she mentioned plyometrics as being any exercise with a, an eccentric followed by a concentric component. And there's an amortization phase in the middle. Um, and there was also like, so, so she listed there's plyometrics with an I and plyometrics with a Y. Yeah. So plyo with an I is essentially just an eccentric. Um, then you can have isometrics and then I can't remember. It wasn't concentric. It was like monometric or something yeah, like they, that. I mean, yeah. There was very like research yeah. heavy terms. Let's call them. Yeah. So isometrics, the only one of those three that stuck around. Um, but basically eccentric, isometric, concentric, and then you can have plyometric, which is all three um, in one movement. And then you can have impact uh, versions or like higher speed versions of an eccentric, um, not really an isometric because you're just there um, or a concentric. You can have a high speed concentric movement. Um, and same thing, you can have a high speed impact plyometric, which is what you're describing. Yeah. And so all that comes down to like when Dr. Yuri Verkashansky first created or kind of coined the idea of these plyometric activities, there were like extensive and intensive versions. So there was like, you're describing higher impact or higher load, higher stress activities, and then lower impact or lower load, lower stress activities in terms of how much load was going on the body. Um, the reason I bring up the contact time is such a crucial component of plyometrics is because if, do you know a little bit of the story of like Yuri Verkashansky creating or like creating or first using plyometric activities in Russia? Uh, like I read, I read some of it, but I can't remember. Tell your story. I'm not sure exactly where you're going. Well, to me, it's kind of a cool story because he was working with jumpers in track and field when he was, when he was in Russia and there were obviously times of the year where the weather's cold, they have to go inside and they weren't necessarily able to do high jump or do long or triple jump because they didn't have the facilities available. So what he was trying to do was figure out a way, okay, if we have to be away from using these facilities, how can I still keep my athletes prepared to high or horizontal jump well by the time we can get back out and use these um, use these facilities. So he basically was looking at the contact time of the jump. So when the foot plants on the board to do a longer triple jump, 
how long are they there? What's the takeoff velocity? What's the, the contact time on the ground? And same with, with high jump. And high jump is considered in track and field to be a long contact time because it's closer to two-tenths of the second rather than a tenth of the second like you see in sprinting. So which, relatively speaking to a number of different sports, is still incredibly fast. It's a very brief amount of time on the ground. So he figured if they weren't able to do those activities, if he could create these jumps or these movements in which the foot was being loaded in the same way. So like you described, that eccentric action or the foot coming down to the ground, that amortization, the foot is stopping and now trying to change and move direction in another way. And then that eccentric or concentric action where you're now jumping and rebounding. He figured if he could recreate that foot movement in training exercises, so these jumps in the right amount of time, then he was still training the abilities for his jumpers to be able to come back and jump well because the foot was used to this rapid bound rebound action getting off the ground. So, and again, I don't know exactly how much of that story 100% is, is accurate, but the idea was he was trying to find a connection between the contact time in jumping and then create exercises that mimic that contact time in exercises so that the athletes were prepared to still long triple or high jumper, whoever he was, was working with. So that to me is why the, the timing element of that contact time being so brief is necessary for it to be considered a plyo. Cause not just any jump can be a plyometric activity. It would have to be specific to that contact time or it's not being used in the way it was originally intended. It becomes something else. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess to me, it sounds like, well, like a, if you're saying that a plyometric has to be like a quick contact time, that's fine. If that's part of your definition, if you're saying it has to be an eccentric amortization concentric, then that's fine. If that's part of your definition, I do 100% agree that the contact time is an essential element in like how you're going to use this exercise. Um, I don't think it needs to be like, it needs to be appropriate, similar. It needs to be close to the activities you're trying to improve. Um, the number that I kept coming across was 250 milliseconds, like two and a half tenths so of a second. So 0.25 instead of 0.2. Like yeah. Yeah. It's close. It's close. But like that was the differentiator, differ, differentiator between thanks. I pronounced it correctly <laughs> um, where um, on the smaller side of that is fast. And on the bigger side of that is slow, which is kind of weird to me that there's like, you know, uh, 0.249 is fast and 0.251 is slow, but you know, that's what you're going to have. Um, and, but yeah, like if you're, you talk about sprinting being, a tenth of a second or less if you're doing jumps that take like half a second 
or you know like 0.4 seconds to get off the ground like is that really going to transfer like maybe a little bit like I, I think it will but not as much as it could and probably not in the way that you're thinking it's going to yeah and i still agree like with you when you talk about the the 0.25 being the the borderline or what separates a fast from slow again that would be that intensive versus extensive but it would still be a plyometric type activity because like you said you have that kind of free fall you're landing on the ground and getting off i the part that kind of bothers me or i think some people in the field have like swayed from is that if both your feet were on on the ground and you loaded up and jumped onto a box they go that's a plyometric activity and it's like well you had no fall and rebound into it so it's a jump but it's not a okay so i'll agree with you that yeah the those other things you were describing are still plyos it's is it intensive or is it extensive but the key is that there needs to be that fall contact with the ground and rebound in order for it to be considered a true plyometric Mm -hmm. because if you don't have the free fall then it changes the mechanics of the movement and the outcome of what you're going to get it's not the same as having both feet planted, loading, and then jumping up. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So that was what I was going to ask. Um, so based off of what you're saying, we're going to like drop jumps or death jumps for sure. Our plyos, any kind of uh, continuous single leg jump, continuous bound, continuous uh, double leg jump are all plyos for sure. Um, sprinting is a plyo. Um, yeah, like we don't yeah. really think about it, but the way the foot contacts the ground on and yeah. off, um, very much in a plyometric fashion. But you would not say that like a, a jump where you start in a squat position and explode up and land on a box. That's definitely not a plyo to me. Zero, zero um, percent, not even close. Would you say a counter movement jump is a plyo? No, because you, you do have, it's not like a free fall, but you do have a loading phase but it's so different because of the amount of time you have to load and apply force mm-hmm. compared to the narrow window where your foot or it could be your hand as well. I don't know many people that could do a really well done plyo push up, for example, mm-hmm. where you're actually getting off the ground really quickly, but it could be the hand or foot, the way it contacts the ground as it's coming down. And then you have to rapidly change direction is different than if your feet or your hands are still planted and you have more time to control the descent and then turn around and send it the other way. Is it that different though? Like I, I know that it is cause it's, it's slower. Um, and you're not gonna like the load and the speed are all going to be lower for sure. But you've also got a spectrum like a high depth jump, compared to a low depth jump, the speed and the load are going to be different there as well. Um, and like, there's varying degrees of contact time. So like, especially if you're starting on your toes, you know, where you do like, you're not, it's not a free fall, but you are dropping and you yeah. are like, like intentionally loading into that bottom position. You know, like I, I, like, I guess the impact is the only thing that's different. 
Well, and the pretensioning as well, right? So if I think about a movement where, like, let's compare the drop jump to the, like a squat jump, let's call it, because that's an easy one to use. With the, the drop jump, there's a level of pretensioning in the lower limb muscles that I need in order to prepare for that contact mm-hmm. and then turn around and go. And it happens much more in a reactive mm. way where I don't want to call it an isometric action. But if you think about some of the stuff with how Verkashansky used it with training his jumpers or a more modern example, Franz Bosch bringing up the idea of there's the isometric muscle action that holds the muscle in place. And then that allows the tendon to change length and be compliant in terms of loading and exploding upwards. You get that with the free fall because of how brief you want the contact time to be Mm -hmm. as where, if you were in a squat jump, you can load and explode and you get a lot more change in, in muscle length, or it's much more Mm -hmm. muscular effort or focused on this concentric action. Mm -hmm. Would I would describe the drop as more reactive mm-hmm. or elastic. Mm-hmm. And then the the squat jump is more like muscly or effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm on board with that. I'm on board so, with that for sure. So that's where if someone was doing like a squat jump, I'd go, okay, that's a power rate of force development thing. Because you're focusing on the output mm-hmm. of the muscles, but that wouldn't necessarily prepare somebody for that brief contact or pre-tensioning in terms of striking the ground, whether it's a jump or mm-hmm. a sprint or anything like that. Cause that component would be, would be missing. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with you. Um, that makes a lot of sense that in, even with like a counter movement jump, like you're gonna, it's going to be a lot more, like, I think you are going to get, you're probably going to get a little bit of stretch in the tendons, but it's going to be a lot more change in muscle length um, in that uh, in that bottom position. And then therefore it's going to be muscle length shortening that's propelling you upwards, not the elasticity and things like that. And there would um, still be some stretch shortening cycle happening. Yeah, for sure. Right? Just like in weightlifting, for example, when like we go way back when we talked about that, Yeah, like the double knee bend has that stretch shortening cycle mm-hmm. activity. But then we talked about the, the lack of like reactivity or elasticity in weightlifting because mm-hmm. the feet stay, they stay planted during the the force production and then they slightly come off the ground and reposition, but it didn't have that reactive element, like a drop jump or sprint or something like that. Yeah. So you're not going to get the, the stretch shortening at the, at the ankle, but at the knee, we talked about it. Um, and same kind of thing, like just in a squat, like you do get some of that um, more or less depending on the speed of the squat and how quick you are in and out of the hole that you're going to see it at the knee. And at the hip, probably. Um, but yeah, no, I'm on. I'm on board with that. Um, that the yeah the pretensioning. And if you think about everything that you would probably want, like we're, like in these um, extensive are the more impact based plows, is what you're talking about, or is that intensive? Intensive would be the ones that are very brief contact time. Okay. And I would say transfer best to sprinting, jumping, the things that people likely want to improve as a result of plyo. And then the the extensive is the stuff that's like a little bit easier, lower load. Mm -hmm. You could do higher volumes of it, or maybe the height isn't as high Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so something okay. like skipping with arm circles that you do in warm up could be considered an extensive movement because the foot's still getting off the ground relatively, relatively quickly mm-hmm. compared to like a walk or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the load is very, very low. You could skip like that for a hundred meters and you'd be fine. Yeah. You wouldn't want to do alternating single leg bounds for a hundred meters because your body would be just That's annihilated. Be tough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So the intensive ones for sure. I, anything that you want these intensive plows to transfer to, they will do way better because yeah, anytime, like I would say most of the time you are in some sort of a free fall when you're coming into those like reactive positions anyway. Like if you're thinking about change of direction, if you're thinking about like straight line speed, if you're thinking about jumping, a lot of the times you are coming in in some form of a free fall. Yeah, you're um, carrying momentum in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's just practicing redirecting that momentum. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's why to me, why I consider those things to be plyometric, because if you wanted somebody, for example, to improve their sprinting, but then you're only doing like squat jumps, you could see then if that person went back to doing sprinting or was trying to improve it where you might see some improvement in areas, but then it's like, well, why? They're still not that much faster because well, you're missing a huge component, which is being able to absorb and yield force on the ground and not give way and be able to turn that energy into a different direction. But you don't get that necessarily with like those standing jumps or things like that. They're more rate of force development. Yeah. Which is or still power, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Which is still useful for sure. Still useful. Exactly. Um, and will have a larger application in certain contexts compared to others or with certain people compared to others. Um, but yeah, with the, the stretch shortening cycle activities, it's a much smaller component. Like the concentric rate of force development action is a much smaller component. Yeah. Like there's so much potential from the, the elasticity mm-hmm. in the tendon and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. that you want that contact time to be brief so you can take advantage of the the stretching and the tightening of mm-hmm. basically your tendon, which is like an elastic band. And so you know what happens if you pull an elastic band and then let go. Mm-hmm. You get a big pop. Yeah, and I don't think those other, like even though you are preloading, like we're talking about in like a counter movement jump, like you wouldn't be able to, I think, I don't know if anybody would be capable of producing as much speed and force within themselves to stretch the tendons anywhere near as much as if you're doing like a free fall type activity. Yeah. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So, I mean, for me, that's kind of, you know, what is, what is a true plyo is something that's again, that you describe perfectly with the stuff from, uh, Natalia Verkashansky, where like kind of the sequencing of what's happening is you go in and out of the jump. And then for me, for it to be considered a true plyo, it has to meet that, mm-hmm. that time constraint of let's call it less than two and a half tenths of a second mm-hmm. on the ground. And if it's above that, then it's some sort of a, a warm up or an extensive 
plyo activity because it, it uses the same sequencing. It's just not quite as intense on the body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me anyway, that's how I classified that maybe because I'm in a bit of the track and field world. So if I screw that up, potentially we don't see the same jump or sprint performance that we would want to see as we're maybe in other sports or activities where the contact times are a little bit longer because you're reacting to an opponent or something that's happening you might be able to get away with it a little bit more. So I could be biased in that sense where coming from some of the track and field stuff, I'm skewed towards that end because if we're not clear about what those contact times are going to be, then it may not transfer as well as we initially hoped. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're dealing with sprinters that are going to be under a 10th of a second, then anything over two tenths of a second is probably not worth your time. Um, at least not for developing the stretch shortening cycle. Um, yeah. You'd be skewed more towards that like early acceleration or block start, something like that. Yeah. Which is fine. As long as you know that that's what you're doing. Um, exactly. Versus something like you were, well, you mentioned the, like a high jump is that was around the two tenths of a second. Yeah. It's closer to two tenths. Yeah. So in that situation, maybe you you would be comfortable working anywhere between one and three tenths of a second to develop the stretch shortening cycle. Um, so yeah, I just think it it you have to understand what you're trying to improve. Like with anything, we always say that. Yeah, and so, and that's what I mean. So that's the thing. So something like you know we've talked a little bit about like hockey before, where the hockey stride you're on the ground for so long mm -hmm. as you apply force, so you might be able to you know, do these other things and you'd see an improvement in like skating speed or something like that. Right. So you may have more, more liberties with team sports. Mm -hmm. Or like I said, there's a component where you're reacting to opponents. You might be on the ground a little bit longer to make a decision as to where you're going. So you might be able to get away with having like a looser definition of what is plyometric activity. Cause the window of time you have to apply force is greater Mm -hmm. so it would yeah. give you it would give you more leeway as to what you could actually use yeah 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 well yeah in those situations you would definitely wanting to skew more towards the rate of force development aspect um yeah makes sense um should we talk a little bit about what the stretch shortening cycle is yeah for how sure. it works yeah, so um, we've been talking about plows the whole time we haven't really talked about what goes on behind like what happens in the body to actually make that yeah. happen why are they good yeah um i i came up uh or sorry i came across an interesting paper um that was kind of touching on the different proposed mechanisms for uh the, why the stretch shortening cycle works um which was helpful for me because i haven't looked into it very much um and the first thing that came up was, or I guess, yeah, one of the main things other than the tendon stretch, the, the main thing that comes up is the, uh, like the neuro aspect with the stretch to the muscle causing like the increased firing of the muscle spindle. Um, but when people measure EMG, there's no increased activation in these like preloaded movements compared to like a squat jump 
or compared to a counter movement jump or something like that, which was interesting. Um, and then you also run into like the dampening effect from the Golgi tendon organ, um, which was also very interesting. Um, so yeah, the, the main thing that people are, or that it, that makes the most sense right now was the loading fast into that bottom position. The muscle is essentially an isometric contraction. The tendons are stretching um, to get into that bottom position and then rebounding out of it. And for that first like half of the concentric, it's just the tendon shortening. And then it's also the muscle and the tendon shortening together at the end. Yeah. That like involuntary action that then gets added with a voluntary action. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that I think is cool too, because if the muscles don't have to stretch, then the muscles can find whatever is their most efficient length and just stay there. And then like they're strong in isometric contraction at their most efficient length. And then they can shorten efficiently from that efficient length. Um, Yeah, that was, that's the main thing, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with you that there's the, that rebounding action where the muscle stays relatively constant in length and the tendon can really load and explode out of that movement. Like, use the elastic band example before, right? Your tendon can work like an elastic band. It gets stretched and then you let go of it. And then there's that big opposite movement in the other way where it snaps back and gives you a whole bunch of energy. Um, like to me, it's really, I think it's a combined neuromuscular thing. It's almost similar to when we were doing the talk on potentiation or post-activation performance enhancement. Mm. There was proposed like, here's some physiological or structural things Mm -hmm. that contribute to this. Here's some, you know, neural or nervous system things that contribute to this, this phenomenon. And because there's, if you look at the stretch shortening cycle or, you know, that function, there's, you know, structural or physiological models, right? Like where you described with, you know, the tendon changing length and things like that. And then there's some of like the neurological side where muscle spindles, Golgi tendon organs, things like that. And we know the human body is really complex. So I don't know if I think to learn about them, it's great that they're separated so you can figure out the mechanisms. But I think in reality, kind of, as you alluded to that it's a combination of, of both to some extent, it's just like we talked about with the potentiation. I mean, yeah, there's definitely interplay. Like you're not, yeah, nothing can be one because like the muscle doesn't stay at an isometric contraction without some level of muscle activity, which is neural and things of that nature. But yeah, I mean, it's, I guess if I'm talking about like the stretch shortening cycle itself, then it is that like isometric muscle contraction with the tendon stretch and recoil um, that way. But in order to improve that, like there is things you can do to the muscle. There is things you can do to the tendons. There is things you can do to the nervous system to facilitate using that uh, phenomenon or, you know, physical ability better. Yeah. 
And like I said, I completely agree with you. Like I have it written here in the notes, like which model both are likely active, but I do tend to bias towards like what you just described. Mm-hmm. The, like the key part of a plyometric or stretch shortening cycle movement is to the, the focus on that isometric activity and letting the tendon mm-hmm. kind of do most of the work take advantage of the elastic properties of the tendon. And I definitely bias towards the model functioning in that way or the activity functioning in that way. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. The, um, the main neuro component that fit into that um, from this, this article and made sense to me was if you look at people that are not experienced in plyometrics um, or like the way that we're describing, like impact plyometrics, um, then they have like a, a pre dampening or a pre, um, inhibition of like, they're not like, they're not ready for the impact. And this like pre inhibition starts like a hundred milliseconds before and lasts through the jump, like another 200 milliseconds or something like that, where like you're, your body's shutting down activation to protect you essentially. Um, And that's just like the Golgi tendon organ. And that's why the muscle spindle thing doesn't make sense because you've got like the sudden stretch to the muscle shortens the muscle spindle, which stretches the tendon, which shortens or inactivates everything to protect the tendon. Um, But if you continue to expose yourself to like plyos in general, but like more specifically just impact like landings, then you can like override that and start to develop that pre-activation that you're talking about beforehand and creating that stiffness on the ground. Yeah. And like you said, like it, yeah, I'm definitely biased towards the call it the, the elastic component, the reactive component, the isometric elastic combo of, of some kind of definitely biased towards that end. And it, it's changed the way I've trained for or in preparation for plyometrics with the thought of this is how it's going to function. And this is how athletes will function in training plyometric activities. And then also in their sport when they're sprinting and jumping. So I'm definitely, definitely more on that end than the other. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's good to, it's good to know and and keep in mind that sort of stuff because it's going to affect how you coach it. And I, I mean, obviously what exercises you select and, and those sorts of things too. Yeah. And f- for me, it was like coming across some of the stuff made me go that way. Like I know there was from some of the, the research that Verkashansky did and published there was, it showed roughly a 70, 30 split in terms of the return energy when someone was jumping what about 70% of it was coming from the elastic activity in the, the tendon. And about 30% of it was coming from like the muscle actually contracting to help propel you in a direction. So I'm going, that's heavily in favor of the, of the tendon. So we maybe should focus a little bit more on the tendon and the elasticity component of that, because we're going to get better bang for our buck in terms of what do we get on a return and in a jump or a sprint and, and even interesting looking at some like the building blocks of training 
that he used before going to true plyos, like where they were doing like those overcoming isometrics or pressing against an immovable object to prepare the, the muscle tissue for that type of contraction. Cause that's what you were going to deal with in the plyometric stuff. And now seeing the more recent work with the writing, like the books from Franz Bosch and stuff like that about how important the isometric activity is to allow the tendon to do the work. I'm starting to move, call it from like the middle ground in this plyo more towards the, like the elastic or the isometric side. So it's not just like I'm going, Oh, I'm picking one side over the other. It's after reading and seeing some of those things, I'm starting to think it makes more sense to be closer to that side as a result of that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely the explanation that makes the most sense. Um, I think right, right now anyway. Um, that, yeah, that's the key right now. Yeah. And <laughs> there's, change. um, yeah, I saw another stat. I don't remember which paper it was from, but another stat that, uh, yeah, stretch shortening cycles. Like if you take the same activity, but like including or not including a stretch shortening cycle, like it's 60% uh, more efficient using the stretch shortening cycle, or that explains 60% of the efficiency or something along those lines. Um, which obviously is going to have an impact in high output stuff, but also like more aerobic stuff too. Like they're talking uh, like some papers were applying the stretch shortening cycle stuff to like distance runners and things like that too. Um, and how it's beneficial just purely for like, like running economy. And yeah. Cause like you're letting that. the tendon do the work. Yeah. Which is I kind think. of, I don't know free energy is the right term to use, but uh, like metabolically, free yeah metabolically free for sure like i mean you need to you do a little bit of meta like so you need completely to, metabolically free because you have to fuel a, an isometric contraction yes muscle but yes it would be less taxing than eccentrically loading the muscle and then actively concentrically loading the muscle yeah exactly and i guess like you i heard um I was listening to a podcast with, it was the just fly one with Joel and then a Darian bar was on it. Um, oh, okay. And he was talking about um, with regards to plyometric training and speed training and things like that. Um, he doesn't like teaching landing mechanics or like landing specifically and how to stop and absorb force, um, which I don't know, like I'm not a hundred percent, on that side, because I, I think it's beneficial for some people to learn how to land for like, you have to, you have to land at some point. Um, but his point was that when I have the energy, I don't want to stop it. I want to use it. Like I want to land and redirect it. Or if I'm changing direction, I'm not stopping and then starting again, I'm redirecting the energy, redirecting the force, you know, which I think makes a lot of sense to do it that way. And so if you're like, when you're doing change of direction stuff, you're not like absorbing like into your stop position and then re like pushing, contracting out of it. Like it's like you're bouncing out of it. You know what I mean? And yeah. That, and that's, that's where I didn't bring this up earlier because we hadn't really got into the mechanisms, but that's where the time frame is so crucial. Mm -hmm. Especially like when you talked about what Barr had mentioned with mm -hmm. 
you know, I don't want to lose the energy. I want to use it. Mm -hmm. Well, if we spend too much time on the ground, then you lose you do. that energy. Absolutely. So that to me is why the, the time frame or the coupling between those two things, like the time in which it takes place is so important mm -hmm. because yeah, if I drop off of a big box and then I stay planted on the ground for five seconds, I've lost all that energy by the time I go back to the Yeah, jump. it's all, it's all gone. It's all gone here. I've, I'm just, I pulled up my spreadsheet because here we go. Um, SSC, strength shortening cycle, half-life of 0 0.85 seconds. That was a stat. I, again, I was from some paper. Oh, I don't okay. remember exactly how they got that. But um, yeah, that's just, there's, it's like a number. It's just a, a number that you can, that you can use. But um, like you said, it shows that the longer you spend on the ground, the more energy that gets dissipated mm -hmm. and is not transferred into whatever movement you're doing afterwards, jump, yeah. sprint, whatever exactly. it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it is interesting to think about how like different people with different levels of like coordination and like muscular strength and uh, like pre-activation slash pre-inhibition and like tendon stiffness and all these things use different strategies to like overcome and how you might want to use different exercises with different ground contacts times for them to get the most out of it and like encourage them in one direction or the other. Yeah, you're absolutely right that there's, there's a time and a place for, for doing that differently. And it comes down to how well do you recognize the movements in the sport and what's actually happening. Cause like you said, there might be times where we want to be on the ground very briefly. There might be times where we want to encourage a little bit of a longer contact time, right? If we think about those like short, moderate, long response plyometrics is sometimes a term that gets mm. thrown around, which is not that different from like the intensive versus extensive just one, you're on the ground a little bit longer, one, you're on the ground a little bit shorter. And that's kind of where it, where it exists. Right. Like, but you, you bring up a good point that, yeah, you need to know what you're trying to get out of your training mm -hmm. in order to use those, these types of movements effectively. Cause like you said, there might be times where spending a little bit more time on the ground makes sense for the sport. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause if someone's running at a slower pace, the contact time might be a little bit longer relative to if someone's running full speed. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, we were just talking, uh, off air like last week about, um, it was James wild. I think was the name that I said on a different podcast, um, where he was looking at, uh, like people's, go-to sprint technique whether it's like longer flight time shorter contact or longer contact longer flight time whatever like basically cycling rate contact time uh stride length those sorts of parameters um and like this is your average but when you run faster this is what you're doing so then trying to push people in that direction and if you find somebody that uh, tends to operate better with like a short contact time, higher cycling rate, 
then you really want to emphasize those short contact time plyometrics probably. And if you find somebody that functions better with like a longer stride length and longer contact time, then you might want to emphasize a little bit more of those long contact or longer contact plyometrics. Yeah. And that's, and it may even be more extreme than that, where if you look at how long someone spends on the ground running in a soccer game or a basketball mm-hmm. game, it's going to be even longer than that. So yeah, you might want to incorporate some more like endurance based stretch shortening cycle type activities. Yeah. Like more of the extensive type plyos. Yeah. yeah. So, and again, so that's why, like when I first bring up like, what is a plyometric to me, the time frame it happens in is so important because if anyone who's coaching or working with an athlete has that in the back of their mind, I think they can appropriately select a lot of these movements that for the most part, people would say, Oh yeah, it's all jumping. It's plyo. People tend to use jump and plyo as this synonymous thing that can be inter like interchanged between the two, but mm-hmm. not all jumps are plyos. Yeah. Based off how we defined it at the, at the beginning for sure. And so I, I think, yeah, like you brought up a good point that that's where it helps give kind of the, the connection to what should I be picking? What shouldn't I be picking in order to make changes that I want to see? Cause you, you really do need to match the contact time if you want to see the best possible transfer mm-hmm. into whatever action you're looking to improve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was actually reading a paper earlier today, just before we hopped on here, that was kind of interesting. And it was comparing different uh, strength measures and different uh, like plyo measures um, to different change of direction activities. Um, and the one that like strength didn't really matter. These were among like trained athletes, like they were uh, soccer players, I think. Um, so I imagine they were all strong enough. So who was stronger or not as strong as other people, I don't think really mattered in that population. It would matter more in other populations, I think. Um, but, uh, the one that had the highest correlation was the lateral bound. Um, because like when you're changing direction, you're pushing off that side of the hip. Um, and it's just, it's all, it is change of directions, a little bit of a longer contact time type activity. Um, and then the, uh, depth jump, it transferred really only to, um, like they, they did a four meter run up to 180 degree change of direction. So like forward, then turning right around, they did 20 meters forward, turning right around. And then they did four meters to a 45 degree cut and 20 meters to a 45 degree cut. Um, and the very fast contact time depth jump only transferred to the 20 meter 45 degree which makes sense because that's the most fast contact time speed dependent. Um, yeah, compared to the four meter stuff, you don't really get a chance to get going mm-hmm. to use that super brief contact. Yeah. That Especially makes sense to me. If you're turning right around, like it's, it's very, like you're spending a lot of time in that position. Yeah. So. And again, that highlights really nicely the, the potential use of a spectrum of longer and shorter response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then just contact operating. Times. 
within, you know, it would be interesting to see um, if there was like a, this is the contact time of the activity that we want to get better at and things within this window transfer well and things outside that window don't transfer well. It would just be interesting to see that that research. Like if you took high jump as it is, you know, 0.18 seconds on the ground. So things between one-tenth and three-tenths transfer, but outside of that doesn't transfer. It would be interesting to see that research. I don't know if it exists, but. Yeah, I don't know how. There's bound to be, maybe not for high jump, but I know Derek Hansen shared a really good chart the other day where basically it was like an infographic or thing where it showed somebody starting in the blocks and then steps as they were rising taller and taller. And then below that, he was showing the change in contact time. So like coming out of the blocks was like three tenths of a second worth of contact in terms of how long you were applying force all the way up to when you get upright and you're applying force in a tenth of a second. So then it gave a nice visual of, and then I think he provided some examples of activities that would, you know, promote the force development within those timeframes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, that was a really cool kind of chart to. Yeah, that is really interesting. And I think Charlie Francis had something similar as well, which would make sense because Derek coached with Charlie at one point before he passed away. So it, it would be coming from like a similar, a similar place. Yeah. That'd be really interesting. And then you can just like, you could look at that chart and be like, okay, with my team sport athletes, what positions are they in? What kind of like, how many steps are they accelerating in a row kind of a thing? And then, okay, I need to operate within this sort of contact time range mm-hmm. and go from there. Yeah. That's cool. That's really good. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a helpful helpful chart just mm-hmm. to remind you all the time of, Oh yeah, these things will do this. These things will most likely do that. Yeah. And yeah, so to pair yeah. activities or like you said, if you want to see an improvement in something, mm-hmm. okay, well, Oh, I was picking something on the other end of the spectrum that might not work as well. Let me pick yeah. this thing over here. Yeah, no, it's, it is good to have those, those tools to kind of constantly remind yourself um, because I, I do think it is easy to, uh, sometimes get wrapped up in like the positions and um, like how things look and how things feel instead of like, this is, yeah, the contact time, this is the forces, the vectors that everything's being exposed to and like the more physiological stuff. And it's easy to get wrapped up in the skill stuff, which maybe is useful. Maybe it's not depending on your role and what you're trying to do. Um, Another thing that, uh, I've thought of during this conversation is like, what do you think the contact time is with your fingers on your guitar or on your bass? Oh, we'll go with just the pick or like the strumming. Oh, see, I was actually thinking on the fretboard. Cause that, that would be so variable depending on how long you're holding the note. Yeah. But it made more sense. Cause I was thinking about like the finger coming down making contact and then that's why i was thinking more what's on the hmm. the fretboard versus the i don't know to be honest it'd be pretty quick i imagine usually but then you can 
you could spend a little bit more time, a little bit more effort, like you stretch the string or deform the string a little bit more, mm -hmm. right? Like if I just briefly and quickly pluck the string, yeah, I'm there kind of briefly, but I could really, I could spend a little bit more time and it deforms the string mm -hmm. more. Yeah, I actually have no idea. Hmm. Interesting. That might be something I can't unthink. <laughs> now every time I'm going to go play and be like, oh, am I... Am I playing the guitar in a plyometric fashion? <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that to your, to, to bring coaching into your one uh, relaxation activity. No, I'm, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> um, yeah. What were you, what were you listening to this week or, or playing this week? I don't know. Uh, I was listening to a, uh, a little bit more, I want to say like older school, like rockish type music. Okay. Um, not quite old school. Like, I don't know if you've heard the band Airborne. Mm. Uh, I forget if they're from Australia, New Zealand, but they've been around for the last like 10 or 15 years, but they have like an, almost like an ACDC feel hmm. to them. So they sounds correct. Like this old school, but they're not from like 50 years ago type feel. Yeah. Old school from the eighties. Yeah. Oh, but they're not quite from the eighties though. No, they're from like 2005. Yeah. Wow. They actually had a track in Madden. They had a track in Madden. Oh, all right. Uh, Which stand one? up for rock and roll. Okay. Okay. Would have either been 07 or 09 because those okay. are the only two that I own. Yeah. Vaguely. Vaguely. So, but yeah, so I was listening to a little bit of Airborne. Um, some of the newer stuff that Slash has been doing. Okay. So Slash from Guns N' Roses, which was yeah. 80s and I guess now old school. Yeah. I enjoy Guns N' Roses for sure. So listen to some of, so that's what I mean. I was a little bit of a change of pace for me, but kind of this older school, but from more recent times, kind of rock and roll feel. Volbeat nice. as well. Oh, I like Volbeat. Yeah, but they got a little bit of that old school. They do have an old school like sound feel. Yeah. yeah. So that was the type of stuff. <clears throat> a little bit of Slash, some Airborne, Volbeat, stuff like that. Nice. That was dope. Jump um, in a time machine. Yeah. But not really. Um, I've done the opposite of jump in a time machine. Um, it's been like a mess for me. I've been trying to like listen to some new stuff or yeah, just like try to find some new stuff. If there's like a hint of like, oh, that song's cool. Let's see what that artist is all about. And then it's all garbage. Um, <laughs> so it's been kind of a mess for me the last little bit. Um and I've just been honestly listening to like radio songs, um, just the whatever the top stuff, like the top playlist on Spotify, like the top hits <clears throat> on Spotify. And there's like a couple of songs that have been uh, really, really getting me going. Well, I, I, I've, they've been in my head. I've been enjoying them. Um, and that's Bad Habits by Ed Sheeran and Good For You by Olivia Rodrigo. Um, so you got full pop. Well, Ed Sheeran is like, that's full pop. Um, but the Olivia Rodrigo one has a lot more of like a punk pop feel to me, which I, which I really oh. like. Um, pop punk's not bad, man. We've talked about that before. Yeah. I like, and I like that a lot. And so I went to check out more of her stuff cause I hadn't heard her before. And then it's all like these slower kind of like sad breakup songs. And I'm like, this is not what I'm here for. <laughs> I'm here for yeah. the pop punk. Yeah. So there's been a few 
a few uh things like that like there was um Brown and I have been watching the show Loki on Disney Plus which is about Loki from Marvel um and there's one one song in like the intro of one of the episodes that was like really good um I think that was something in the water by Haley Kiyoko but then all of her stuff on Spotify I'm like this is I mean it's fine it's fine it's not great um that had it had like a little bit of like a pop electro kind of feel to it which was which was decent so I think she's collaborated with phantoms before on some stuff which would make sense interesting interesting how that edm electro feel stuff yeah so we'll see i i have new leads though that i might have a more definitive answer next time but for right now it's just kind of a hodgepodge which is fine that's okay hey you're exploring something new right yeah that's right um yeah, but that was a that was a good start. We'll be back for Plyos Part Two next yeah, time. Yeah, kind of talk about all the other things we have written down. Yeah, that was just kind of setting the stage, the the basics right there. But what is it? Yeah, now we can really start to dive into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you have any questions, comments, anything else you want us to talk about, let us know on Instagram, Speed Strength Show, Speed Strength Performance, or Braden Southern. And we will get back to you or talk about it or whatever. Um, So until then, thanks for coming along, world. That was the Speed Strength Show. We'll see you next time. Peace.